Good morning. Glad that you are here this morning. Good to see those of you who are here in the auditorium. Welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. Good to be together this morning. Hope you have a blessed week. Hope you're planning on a blessed week coming up this week. I heard a story about two old retired fellas who are sitting on the front porch talking about life. And one guy turns to his friend and says, you know, you and your wife have been married for like 50 years. You seem so happy. You seem so content. What's, what's the secret of your long, successful marriage? And his friend turns to him and says, well, every single day of our marriage, I have made sure that my wife heard those three words that every wife needs to hear. And his friend said, yeah, I think I know what three words you're talking about. That's right. Every single day I pull my wife aside, I look her in the eye and say, I was wrong. (laughs) And married men everywhere, not in agreement, right? Very good. Okay, we are continuing this full-blown sermon series now where we are picking out some single words and sort of uh, looking at those specific words. And I'm picking out words that I, I think are pretty important words. Words that, uh, maybe I should have entitled this thing, Words to Live By or something, but we've talked about some specific words, and as you see, the word for today is sorry. And I'm going to tell you right up front, this might be the most difficult word of all to talk about. Some of you aren't going to like this word at all. I'm just going to warn you. Uh, It's a word that sort of strikes at our pride, And this morning when I talk about the word sorry, I'm not talking about it in the context of, you know, my bad or oops, sorry. I'm talking about it in a little bit deeper context than that. Talking about just an honest look at our lives, just with some unflinching humility to look at what exactly is in my heart. What are are my motives? What's my agenda? I want to try to talk about some surgery for the soul this morning. Um, Now, this word, sorry, it's really a simple word. And yet, people find some very creative ways and some amazing reasons not to say it. Some people have gone years without saying the word sorry. Other people say it, but there's really not too much behind it. They don't mean too much when they say sorry. Certainly not using it in a way that might lead them somewhere else. But this word, sorry, it's a really important word to God. Acknowledging and admitting those three simple words. I was wrong. Really important when we think about life in the kingdom. And not because it's humiliating or embarrassing or meant to be belittling. Not at all. In fact, just the opposite. It's actually a pathway to transformation. It actually opens up a door to to, to freedom. There's this um, kind of strange and a little bit scary story in the New Testament that sort of highlights just how important this word sorry is and how high the stakes are for people who aren't sorry. It begins at the very beginning of the church movement. This thing is brand new just beginning to get some traction. Uh, It's in the city of Jerusalem. 
And there is a husband and wife there in Jerusalem named Ananias and Sapphira who are a part of this brand new movement. And we're not exactly sure what attracted Ananias and Sapphira to uh, the kingdom, to the church, but for whatever reason, they found Jesus very appealing and they become part of this movement. And one of the defining and sort of unique aspects of this new community of believers is their generosity. Uh, George mentioned this in his class this morning. But Acts 2, at the very beginning of this thing, all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. You know, I, I talked about the fact last week that the people that Jesus was attracting they weren't the rich and the famous. For the most part, they were the poor, and they were the downtrodden. And yet, there were some people in this new community who had some resources. In fact, there was this one guy named Joseph. He took a, a piece of land, and he sold it, and he brought the money from that sale to the feet of the apostles. And people were so impressed with Joseph, they gave him a nickname. They started calling him Barnabas which means son of encouragement. This married couple, they have some resources as well. And so, um, here's what happens next. Most of you are going to know this story. It's in Acts chapter 5. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also took a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it to the disciple, at the apostles' feet. Okay, let's play this out a little bit. Here's a couple. They have some, some resources. And they see other people who have things, selling things and bringing the money, giving things away. And maybe this married couple feels a little bit of pressure to do the same thing because everybody knows they have some things. Or maybe they look at what's going on and they're a little bit jealous. They see other people being congratulated and, and uh, you know, people being impressed with other people. Maybe they think, well, you know, we kind of want that attention too. But this couple is in a, a bit of a dilemma. They want to be generous, but they also really like having some extra money. And they want to be loved, but they're a little bit selfish. And they want to be celebrated, but they don't really want to sacrifice. They want to look like they're being generous, but they don't mind being deceitful about it. Now, before we start, you know, shaking our head at that terrible couple, hold up just a minute. Because we all have a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira in us. I mean, we want God, right? Not everybody wants God, but you wouldn't be here today if you didn't want God. You wouldn't be watching online today if you didn't want God. But if we're honest with ourselves, we also want some of the things that we know go against God's desires. We just do. Well, what a wretched man am I, is what Paul said. The very thing I want to do, I don't do. The very things I don't want to do, I, I do. No, that's, that's kind of where Ananias and Sapphira are. Ananias has this idea. We can take this piece of land, we can sell it, and we can come and give the money to the apostles, and everybody's going to think, and we won't argue against it, that this is all the money that we got. And people are going to think we're very generous, and we're going to look really good, even though we're going to sort of be going against the very values that we 
claim to uphold, but it's going to be great. It's, it's going to be a great plan. He tells his wife, Sapphira, the plan. And this is a very key moment in this whole narrative. Because Sapphira could have told her husband, you know, that's a really bad idea. Now, I know a lot of wives who don't mind telling their husband, <laughs> you know, that's a really bad idea. But Sapphira doesn't say that to her husband. No, she doesn't say, you know, we don't have to sell this land. And even if we do sell the land, we don't have to give all the money to the apostles. She doesn't do any of that. She, she goes along with the plan. The apostle Peter finds out about their deception. We're not sure how Peter found out about the deception, but he does. And he confronts Ananias very plainly. And, and he tells him, you know, the deepest sin here isn't the jealousy or the resentment or even the greed. It goes deeper than that. Here's what uh, Peter tells Ananias. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Peter tells this guy, you know, nobody was holding a gun to your head here. You didn't have to sell that property. And once you sold it, the money was all yours. You could have done whatever you wanted to do with the money. The real sin here is, is the deceit. It's hiding your true motives. You're trying to be something that you really aren't. You know, there is something about spiritual hiddenness that is incredibly toxic to the community of God. It's, it's not just a sin against other people. Peter said it's a sin against God as well. Of course, most of you know what happens next. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard about what had happened. Uh, yeah. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And for the second time, Luke tells us, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Absolutely. Great fear seizing everyone. I got a question for you. Why is this story in the Bible? What is this story doing in the Bible? I mean, remember the time frame here. This is early on. This is the very beginning of the church. The church is just starting to gain some traction. This community of believers, man, everything's going so well. They've got all things in common. They're sharing all things. You know, there's just so much joy and happiness. They're inviting other people to, to join them in this journey. It doesn't seem like people dying would be the greatest promotional strategy, right? No, come join us. You might die. 
come to church. It might kill you. Probably not on their board out front, right? Here's what I think's going on. This group of believers is plugging into this incredible power source. Since the day of Pentecost, there's something going on in this community. Because the Holy Spirit came, this group has all this access to all this power that they never had access to before. And it starts to play out in their lives. And they start to, to, to show patience like they've never been patient before and, and, and joy like they've never experienced joy before. And, and they're showing uh, kindness and gentleness. They're encouraging like never before. They're forgiving. They're breaking down all these barriers that have separated people that have hated each other for like hundreds of years. And there's all this love like never before. You know, what is happening is the human race is, is getting plugged in here, right? This spiritual power starts flowing through this community. And the Bible teaches, and it's really important, not just for a group, but also for individuals, the Bible teaches that spiritual power flows best when we just get honest with ourselves. And when we get honest with God, and when we start to get honest about our dependence on the Father. Now, this is tough for us. It's tough for us as Americans because it's so counterintuitive to what everybody else tells us. See, our message that we receive from the world is, well, you need to be large and in charge. You need to at least fake it till you make it. You need to look like you've got it all together. You're smart, you're wise, you're, you're strong. When actually the power of God starts flowing through people when they get serious about acknowledging their weakness and their confusion and their guilt and their sin and their dependence on God. God told Paul in 2 Corinthians, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we get really confused about this. Because we want to show people how strong we are. We somehow have to put on this facade of being better than we really are. We want to fool everyone into believing that we've got it all figured out. We've got it all going on. Look at us. Just come and join us. Be like us because we're so perfect. And I'm telling you, that attitude will kill a church. Because when we just get honest with each other and with ourselves, and when we start sharing our real stories, in our real lives, in our real struggles, in our real flaws and problems, when we do that, we accelerate that flow of spiritual power. When we encourage honesty with each other, sin gets named, people get encouraged, people get loved. People get healed. It's fascinating. Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit flowing in human beings the same way that we think about electrical current flowing through a wire. In uh, John chapter 7, John writes this, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, 
Streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. When I hide the real me, it decreases that spiritual power. Now I just sort of smother honesty and change and grace. I put the brakes on transformation. And it doesn't just damage the one who's doing the hiding, by the way, because all of a sudden we start creating this culture where it seems like, well, I've got to look like I've got it all together because everybody else looks like they got it all together. And I've got to look like I don't have any problems because I don't see anybody else with any kind of problems. And pretty soon it is sort of not just acceptable, it's sort of expected to try and make ourselves look better than we really are. This story of Ananias and Sapphira You know, it's the first story, I guess, in the church of somebody trying to hide, but it's certainly not the first story in the Bible of someone trying to hide. You can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought they could hide from God as well. And just like Ananias and Sapphira, it ended in death. It always ends in death. You know, this, this story, it's in the Bible for a reason. And our ultimate fear shouldn't be the fear of dying. Our ultimate fear should be the fear of living the wrong life. Our ultimate fear should be the the fear of becoming the wrong person. Of not trusting God to do what God promised that He would do. The worst thing we can do is not believe that God knows what He's doing. No, when the text says not once but twice that great fear seized them, we read that and we think, well, that must have been very uncomfortable. It must have been very unpleasant. No, that was just the reality. It's, it's the ironic fact that the people who know grace and mercy best understand this more perfectly. There's an old song that we do still sing, by the way. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. One of those verses is, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." If I am listening to God's Word, grace is going to teach me that life apart from God, I'm living on the doorstep of hell. That should scare me to death. And that should cause me to cry out, God, help me. God, help me. I am sorry. Should cause me to realize my need for a community of intense spiritual power. The kind of power that only comes with true honesty and deep confession. Thorough cleansing. That's the church that Jesus came to establish. Listen, real quick. I want to kind of walk us through three strategies to help us sort of learn to live with this word, sorry. And like always, I'm going to tell you up front, uh, these strategies, there's nothing deep. There's nothing mysterious about them. But they are important. And I warn you up front, they're tough. They're a little bit difficult. And the first is this. I get brutally honest with what's truly in my heart. I've just got to get brutally honest with myself about what's really in my heart. 
Because it is so easy for me to hide behind my own delusions. Now, it's easy for me to get brutally honest what I think is in your heart, too, by the way, right? We're good at that. Let me just, let me be brutally honest with you for a minute. Well, be brutally honest with yourself for a minute about what's really in your heart. David wrote this in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. You know, of course, I do this with God. I do this alone with God. I take a, just a sincere moral inventory. And I ask God to help me with that. God, where is my heart? Where is it really when it comes to things like anger and pride and lust and greed and laziness? Would you just shine a spotlight on that? Because it's just, it's just me and God. There's no use trying to hide from God. He, he knows. I might as well be honest with myself as well. Ask God to help me see where those things are in my thoughts and in my behavior. I tell God that I'm sorry. And I get plugged back into that power source. You know, I was thinking about this. If someone were to ask me the question, what does the world need most? My answer would be Jesus. Absolutely. What the world needs most is Jesus. But I'm a preacher, right? (laughs) You would probably say the same thing, but, you know, you're Christians. What about all those people who aren't Christians? What would they say the world needs most? And, And even if we could poll everyone... I've got a feeling that most people would not say, well, we need better homes, or we need a better economy, or we need better laws, better medicine, you know, better government. I think most people would agree, what we need is better people. That's what the world needs, is better people. I'll agree with that as well. Here's some good news. You can make a great contribution to this. You can help the world have better people. Where should you start? Where should be like project number one? Who do I have the best chance of, the best shot of making a better person? Hmm. Well, I guess it would be my friend. Or my roommate. Or my girlfriend. My boyfriend. My spouse. My child. No. The best shot you have at making someone a better person is you. Right? I'm the best chance I have at making me a better person. The world needs better people. I need to start with me. I'm responsible for my life. I'm responsible for dealing with the sin in my soul because it's, it's my life. It's my soul. That's me, nobody else. Strategy number two. I confess my flaws to myself and to God. Okay, once, I, once I'm kind of honest with myself, I take this moral inventory. And I say, you know what? That's not right. That's not where God's calling me to be. And that's not how God is calling me to live. And I confess that to the Father. John wrote in, in 1 John chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and refusing to accept the truth. But if we confess our sins to Him, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every wrong. 
Do you notice the connection between confession and forgiveness? And the connection between confession and cleansing and healing? I go back to my same argument. Everyone would agree, I want fewer problems in my life. We would all agree on that, right? Raise your hand if you agree. I want fewer problems in my life. Yeah, those of you not raising your hand, you got a problem, okay? <laughs> but I think we all would agree, I want fewer problems in my life. Again, what or who would you say is the number one problem creator in your life? It's you, right? I am by far the largest problem creator in my life. The vast majority of my problems I can trace back to me. You know, they're my fault. I've come to the conclusion that I am a reasonably intelligent person who does moderately stupid things on a semi-regular basis. And maybe you are as well. The good news is, I can seek transformation of the number one source of my problems. With God's help. If I'm honest with God, if I'm honest with myself, if I just quit trying to hide, I can address in a positive way the number one source of most of my problems. Again, I'm going to go back to David. Because he understood this problem and he learned this lesson. Although he learned it the hard way. Psalm 32. When I refused to confess my sin, I was weak and miserable. And I groaned all day long. Do you ever find yourself weak? Just having a day where, man, I'm miserable. A day where you groan all day long. Did you ever think maybe it had something to do with your failure to confess to God? It's what David says. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. Stop trying to hide them. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. Listen, I am convinced when people hide, people die. And when people get real, people get healed. It's what David learned. I'm convinced that God is just that good. So I confess to God and I confess to myself my, my sinfulness, my brokenness, my total dependence on the Father. And then the third strategy in living with this word sorry is I do whatever I can to make right what I've made wrong. You know, sorry isn't just the acknowledgement of um, wrong, doing a wrong thing. It's also a commitment to do the right thing. It's not just a feeling of, well, I feel bad about that, but there's some action that needs to take place in this whole process. When you look at the first five books of the Old Testament, we call them the books of law, the word retribution is all over the place in those first couple of books. Uh, Numbers, for example, says this, The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When a man or woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord. By the way, when you wrong someone else, you're being unfaithful to the Lord. If I wrong you, I'm not just hurting you, I'm I'm being unfaithful to the Lord. 
That person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. He must make full restitution for his wrong. He's got to fix the problem. He's got to do something to make things right. Remember in the New Testament, uh, the wee little man named Zacchaeus who was a tax collector and was kind of a thief. Robbed everybody, had a lot of money till he met Jesus. Luke tells us that Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, I give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I've overcharged people on their taxes, I'll give them back four times as much. Jesus claims salvation has come to this house. That's right, Zacchaeus. That's the right thing to do. You know, this idea, the purpose behind taking a moral inventory, confessing our flaws to God, making amends, it's not just because that's what you got to do if you want God to forgive you. No, it goes so much deeper than that. At the very core, it's where redemption starts. It's where transformation begins. It's how we receive that grace to become a better person. Now, before I sit down this morning, sit down this morning, um, I want to share just two quick things because I'm not a mind reader, but I know what some of you are probably thinking. We go through those things, you say, yeah, that's good, but, but I don't really need that. I know there are moral train wrecks out there. You know, there are murderers and uh, rapists and child molesters, but that's not me. You know, my life is pretty well managed. I'm, I'm basically, a, you know, a decent God-fearing person. Listen, read your Bible. You know who Jesus had the biggest problem with? Decent, God-fearing people. Because the sins of decent, God-fearing people are especially insidious. Arrogance, resentment, being judgmental, a sense of entitlement. Jesus' biggest enemies were decent, God-fearing people. Decent, God-fearing people put them on the cross. Yeah, I need this. Yes, you need this. Or maybe you're thinking, okay, you're right, I need this, but I don't want to do this. You know what I would say to that? Of course you don't want to do this. <laughs> Nobody wants to do this. Since when does I don't want to have any play in the thing? No. When did God ever say, thou shalt do or not do what thou don't want us to do? He never said that. If you're serious about being a disciple of Christ, I don't want to, died a long time ago. That's not part of the equation anymore. And if you're still allowing, I don't want to, to trump what Jesus calls you to do and who Jesus calls you to be, then, like John said, you're fooling yourself. You're not a follower of Jesus. I've preached an entire sermon on the word sorry. And I haven't one time used the word repent. So obviously there is so much more <laughs> that we could talk about when it comes to this word. 
But this morning, I hope that if nothing else, we've reminded ourselves that this, this word sorry can lead us to a place where, where God's spirit and God's power and God's blessings really start to flow. It, it is a pathway to transformation. It's such an important word. It is such an important concept. Is there an easier way? Is there a softer way? Nope. It's kind of like dying. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There's a lot to the word sorry. In just a couple minutes, we're going to share together with uh, the Lord's Supper, take communion. Communion is something that we share together every single Sunday. And we will every Sunday until we die. My body broken for you, Jesus says. My blood poured out for your sins. The crucifixion again. The resurrection again. We do this week after week, again and again. Because we need to keep dying to our old self over and over and by grace be reborn again and again. But this morning, I'm, I'm going to give you a challenge. This morning, in a couple minutes, when we sit down and we share together the Lord's Supper, I don't want you to take it as a decent, God-fearing person. Take it as someone with no pride, no reputation, no stature, no entitlement, no visions of grandeur. Just take it as a sinner who's been saved by grace. Take it as someone who's just trying to plug into the reality and the power of Christ crucified, since we have been crucified with him. We're going to sing a song to help us prepare for that, and then the brother's going to come up and lead us in the Lord's Supper.